0: All right, grab your Bibles. We're going to go to First Chronicles chapter 29, and we're going to bring our series on the Lord's Prayer to a close. For those of you who might be joining us today for the first or the second time, we have been on a series called Praying with Jesus. And it's been a beautiful series on the Lord's Prayer. I have learned so much in this series. We taught this series five years ago. And every time we put extra attention on learning about the Lord's prayer, it's almost as if I'm learning it all over again for the very first time. And this one has been particularly meaningful for me in the season that the Lord has me in, drawing me into deeper waters of prayer. And there's just been, I think, a touch of of authenticity on this series for me. And I hope and I pray that you have been drawn in to greater prayer times with the Lord through this series, and there's been greater understanding that has come to you through the various parts of the prayer throughout this series. So we're gonna pray, then we're gonna jump straight to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together with the people of God. Lord, this is a, this is a high watermark day. It's a high watermark day in our week. It's a high watermark day, God. Uh, In the season of life that every single one of us are in, it's an opportunity for us to gather together with other believers in Christ. It's an opportunity for us to realize that we're not alone. It's an opportunity for us to remember, oh God, that you are at work in our lives. And Father, today I pray that on this memorial weekend, Lord, that if there are any in the family of God today that find themselves especially tender, that maybe find themselves in a moment or a season of reflection or grief or maybe even find themselves alone. Father, today I pray that the Spirit of God in and through the people of God would minister grace and comfort, would minister companionship and friendship, and would minister hope. Father, we pray that you would be especially near. To those brothers and sisters in our house today that find themselves hurting and that find themselves alone. May the peace of the Lord be with them in a very, very tender way. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We started off this series several weeks ago by saying that we had three key objectives. And those three key objectives are really the objectives that we have every time we enter into this space. Those objectives are three very simple words. Number one, it's encounter. Number two, it's formation. And number three, it's mission. And we said at the onset of this series that we want these messages to equip you to encounter God more dynamically, to encounter God more regularly, to encounter God more powerfully, more intimately. We also said, that one of our objectives every time we gather together as a people is that we want to help you become formed into the image of Jesus by the grace and by the power of his spirit. Everything that we do in these services is in some way designed strategically to help us become more like Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that throughout these messages that somehow, some way, your heart has been drawn into the life of God In a new way. And the third thing is, we said that every time we gather together, we want to empower you for the mission that God has for your life. Every single one of us have been drawn into the mission of God in the earth, that mission is to make Jesus known through the gospel and to invite lost people into the family of God, to belong to the family of God. And my prayer is that these messages have somehow not only inspired you, but equipped you and given you strength and grace by his spirit to join God in his mission. Now, the words of this prayer, I think, are perfect. They're perfect. And how do you end a perfect prayer? This line of the Lord's prayer, the final line of the Lord's prayer says this, It says, yours, O God, is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever, forever, forever. And then, amen. Let it be. It's done. It is so. So we're going to talk about these three words today. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. Now, some of you might be looking at your Bibles, and you'll recognize these words were not in the original scriptures. They were not in the original prayer, particularly in Matthew's version of this. These words, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, are an adaptation of this verse right here in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. We read it this morning, verse 11. Look with me if you would. This is David praying, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the glory and the majesty, and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So the New Testament writers would have available, and these lines that David himself penned stood out to the New Testament writers, and they said, what better way to end the perfect prayer of Jesus than to bring these lines yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. I want to talk about these three points here because the final line of the Lord's prayer confronts the temptation in our lives. We have a temptation inside of every single one of us, and that temptation is to build our own kingdom by the misuse of our power for our own glory. say that one more time this final line of the lord's prayer confronts our temptation to build our own kingdoms by the misuse of power for our own glory right the temptation of the garden and the temptation of the wilderness remain the same now all throughout this series i didn't intend on doing this but it just seemed that each week as we were preaching each and every one of these lines of the Lord's Prayer, we found ourselves in Genesis 3 and in Matthew chapter 4. In Genesis 3, we found ourselves in the temptation of the garden. In Matthew 4, we found ourselves in the temptation of the wilderness. And in each of these two temptation scenes, we find the enemy working on the first man, the first Adam, And we see the enemy working on the son of man, the second Adam. And we find in both of these situations that the enemy is trying to get mankind, whether it be Adam or Jesus, to live independently from God, to build our own kingdom, to misuse power, and to make ourselves the hero of our own story. The same strategy in both of these environments. And we have to understand that the strategy of the enemy does not end in the garden and it does not end in the wilderness. The enemy is trying to get every single one of us to build our own kingdoms after our own name with our own character and to misuse power for our own ends, right? So let's take each and every one of these by themselves. We will either build a kingdom that looks like us or we will bear a kingdom that looks like him. We will either build a kingdom that looks like us or we will bear a kingdom that looks like Jesus. Go with me, if you would, to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, we're gonna read the first six verses of the book of Acts. And to give some of you a little bit of a historical background right here, Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he is showing up to a handful of his followers and we find that over a period of 40 days, Jesus is reiterating to them the nature of, Of the kingdom of God. Now remember, when Jesus came on the scene, his primary message was the kingdom of God is here. He was inaugurating, he was beginning, he was launching the kingdom of God into the earth. He was showing humanity who God the Father is and what the kingdom of God looks like. Let's begin. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. Why don't you look at somebody and say, wait for the gift. Wait for the gift. This is the gift that my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, we talked about this just briefly last week, but I want to give a little bit more attention about this today. I need you to... Enter into the imagination of this with me. I need you to enter into the fact that Jesus has just defeated death. That Jesus has just literally destroyed the power of the grave. That he has stripped the enemy of his primary weapon. And his primary weapon is to keep people in bondage to the fear of death. And what Jesus did was he took that away from the enemy. Do you know how most people who lead from a position of tyranny and oppression, do you know how they lead? They lead with the weapon of the fear of death. Like if I can control you with fear, I've got you. And I can lead you. And I can oppress you. So if I can just muster more power of some sort, then I can threaten you with your life. And what Jesus did was he absolutely toppled the secret weapon of every regime by saying, your greatest weapon, I've taken the sting and the power away from you. You say that if, if I am to follow you, if I don't, then you're going to take my life. That's fine. Take my life and watch what I'll do. I'll just resurrect from the dead. like. You have no more power anymore to rule over me or my people with fear. So Jesus shows up and he gives convincing proofs. These are not theoretical proofs, these are not cerebral arguments. He comes and he walks through walls, and he eats dinner with them, and he says, put your finger into my hands. He's giving them convincing proofs, and here's why. Because he knows that the entire enterprise rises and falls on the credibility of his resurrection, Right? right? Everything, the entire mission of why Jesus came to the earth, born of a virgin, born to a couple of peasants, right? Everything, all of the temptations that Jesus resisted, all of the torture that he went through physically, it all rises and falls on this, on whether or not his disciples have enough conviction within them of his resurrection that they're willing to die for it, Right. right? So for 40 days, he is eating with them, he's fellowshipping with them, This is not some ideology that he's passing on. He's like, listen, guys, I'm real. I'm here. And then, as if the first three years were not enough, he spends intensely 40 more days, and all he talks about is the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom, the person of the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom, why the kingdom is coming, what the kingdom of God is about. And I want to give you guys a little bit of hope today. For those of you guys who feel like, number one, that you've studied something over and over and over again and you feel like you've, you don't have it yet. Number two, if you're a parent here today and you feel like you've told your toddler or your teenager the same thing over and over and over again, I want to give you a little bit of hope today. All right? <laughs> you're like, please encourage me, right? These disciples, after all of this intense time with Jesus, they ask him a question. And what is the question that they ask him? So, so now what you're telling me is, now that you have defeated death, now it's time for us to be in charge. Now it's our time. Now it's time for us to seize power. Like the boot has been on our neck all this time, right? We have been under the impression of, of empires. And what you're telling me now is you've just defeated death. Right? It's, like, it's like Gandalf coming back. Like, oh yeah, we, we had Gandalf the gray, but, but, but now we got Gandalf the white, right? Like we, we've, got, we've just powered up here. Okay? Yeah, yeah, we understand that, you know, all the, all the humility talk, we understand all that, but, but this is a different day. You've just defeated death, right? Now we get to go and we get to ride into Rome and we get to overthrow them and we get to be the oppressors. We get to be the people who are in charge. We get to be the ones who restore the glory of Israel that Solomon and David had. In fact, we get to make it better. We get to put our fingerprints on it. We get to make the kingdom look like us, right? This is what's inherent in this question. You cannot miss this. So you're telling me that now that you've risen again from the dead and you talked with us about the kingdom, you're telling us that now it's the time for us to be in charge, to build kingdoms that look like us. And I think it's so interesting that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for this. Like, I want you to get into the, I want you to get into the psyche of this, you guys. This isn't just good preaching. I, I want you to get down into what it must feel like to be someone without rights. To get down into what it must feel like to be someone without position, without status. To walk into a room and no one knows that you're there. This is the people of Israel. I want you to get down into what it must feel like to want new shoes for your kids, but you don't have money to buy that. I, I want you to get down into what it must feel like to, to be the one who feels like you're always drawing the short end of the stick. And finally, for the first time since you've been alive, that you can look at the scenario and go, no, 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 no now, now, it's, now it's time for us to have glory and power and to build a kingdom. It's understandable. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for this. He doesn't rebuke them for this, but what he does is he reconfigures for them what kingdom and power and glory look like. I want to get down into our level here for a minute, because we have to understand that the temptation to build kingdoms is the temptation to make the world look like us. Right? The people of Israel carried this deep in their bones. They carried it deep in their sociological DNA, so much so that Jesus was constantly, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he was constantly trying to deconstruct Israeli nationalism out of them. He was constantly trying to reinterpret for them their own history. He was trying to retranslate for them words that they had grown up memorizing that were deeply embedded in their heart. He was trying to say, Now, all this time you thought it meant this, but I want you to know it really means this. You guys, for those of you guys who have been with us for quite some time, we preached a message last year, kind of in the height of so much of our sociological tension, and we talked about the fact that Peter, a good, wonderful Jew, grew up memorizing the scriptures. He finds himself years after Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes, and still some of this kind of ultra superior nationalistic identity this ethnic segregation was so deep in peter that god had to give him not one not two but three visions to try to work this stuff out of him see when we build kingdoms that look like us the problem is is that people who don't look like us are not welcome in our kingdoms people who don't Think like us. Now, don't get this twisted. I'm, I'm not trying to subversively, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the human propensity in whatever classification you want to put this in. It is the human propensity to build our own kingdom in which we are the ones who are in charge and the entire atmosphere of those kingdoms reflects us. Guys, that is in us. All right. Socioeconomic kingdoms, socioeconomic classifications, ethnic kingdoms. Christy and I just yesterday, as we were driving back, we were we were reflecting on and digging into a little bit of a situation that happened in 1994. Many of you may know the story of the Rwandan genocide, where the Tutsis and the Hutus, who were both believers, let me just add this: the Tutsis and the Hutus, both of them Christians. And by way of an outside nation coming in and propping up one of these people groups over the other created an ethnic tension that resulted in over a million people that were murdered in a hundred days. Listen, and they were followers of Jesus. And what do we make of this? What we make of this is that anytime we elevate... Anytime we elevate something in our lives above the kingdom of God to give us some sense of value or power, it will inevitably cause us to turn on the people that are around us. So when we build kingdoms that look like us, we will be prone to exclude or abuse or oppress people who don't look or think or act or behave like us. And so when Jesus comes, he turns this upside down. He turns it on top of his head and he essentially says this. He says, listen, your job is not to put your name on your Christianity. Like, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about in what ways are you putting your name on your Christianity? Like that, I think that's something that we've got to get into. We've got to, we've got to grapple with and we've got to wrestle with. Like, I I believe in having some element of, of pride in our historical roots. But when we put too much pride on the nuances that define us, I'll give you an example, right? I love being a Pentecostal. I love being a charismatic. But if I'm not careful, I can love being a charismatic to the exclusion of people that don't understand or believe or think the way that I think as it relates to life in the spirit. And I can do that in such a way that it not only excludes other people from my fellowship, but it actually turns them into enemies. Yeah, right. yeah. And and you, see, and you see this happen all the time within the body of Christ, right? And these are things that we have to be careful of. And I'm speaking from experience. I'm speaking from experience of being in circles that would that would use language like us versus them yes. in the body of Christ, yes. okay? Oh, those, those, are, those are just seeker-sensitive people. We're not, we're not like them, right. okay? Now what we've done is we've created a matrix by which they're wrong, and we're right, and we're better, and they're worse, and now they're enemies, right? right. And we do this with all kinds of things, you guys. So we have to be careful whenever we are placing our name on our Christianity and not the name of Jesus. So our purpose is not to build a kingdom that looks like us. Our purpose is to bear a kingdom that looks like the king. And how do we do that? We get deep into who Jesus is. That we get deep into the way that Jesus treated all kinds of people that we get deep into the way that Jesus modeled the kingdom of God that he was coming to bring. And if you need a starting point, I would just say start right there in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Start right there. Because what we find is that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that is open to all, not just the wealthy or not just the powerful, not just the beautiful, not just the talented. Jesus's kingdom is not just for the athletic. It's not just for the gifted. It's not just for the intellectually stout. Jesus's kingdom is for all people. And particularly Jesus's kingdom is for those who have been overlooked or overseen or pushed out to the margins or not wanted or excluded or not invited to the party. This is Jesus's kingdom, right? Jesus's kingdom comforts those who mourn. The kingdom of God isn't the kingdom that exploits those who are vulnerable. It's not the kingdom that takes advantage of people when they're at their lowest. See, that's a power move. It's a power move that is executed by the spirit of this age. Jesus says, if you're low, if you're vulnerable, if you're mourning right now, come and let me comfort you. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm not going to exploit you. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to bring you back to a place of wholeness. And strength. Jesus' kingdom rewards those who do what is right. Jesus' kingdom elevates the humble. Now, I know what you're thinking because I think these things. I think that doesn't work in the real world, Jesus right? There's been too many times where I've found the money and I've taken it back and I've gotten no reward out of it, right? There's been too many times where I've stepped out of bounds and the referee didn't see it. And I said, that was me. And I didn't get rewarded for it. If anything, I I got consequences for it. I got punished for it. You mean to tell me that you elevate the humble. Every time I've humbled myself, I've been taken advantage of, but we've got to see beyond this moment in time, And we have to see that the kingdom of God, which is here and which is coming in its fullness in that kingdom, it's a kingdom where God makes all things right and he elevates the humble and he rewards those who live lives of integrity and truth. The second temptation that we find here in this prayer, it's the temptation to either misuse our own power for our own ends or to steward God's power to serve other people, right? Don't don't miss this. The temptation is that we will misuse power for our own ends. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the, say it with me, power. power. So what's, what is the temptation that this line of the prayer is confronting? It's confronting our temptation to misuse and to abuse power for our own ends. Yeah. Now, here's a couple of thoughts on power. Number one, power is neutral. Power is neither good nor bad. Power is necessary. Every single one of us need power to live life. We need power to accomplish good things in the world. Power is ability to do certain things. Power is something that every single one of us in this room have. You may not think of yourself as someone who carries power, but you carry power. We all carry power to some degree. We carry social power. Every single one of us carry a degree of physical power, of physical strength, of physical ability, the ability to exert energy and force upon another thing in order to make that thing do what we want it to do. Every single one of us carry a measure of intellectual power. All right, so we are all power brokers or power carriers to some degree. But here's the temptation. It's the temptation to use power for our own ends in a way that does not bless or glorify God. It's the misuse of power. It's the abuse of power to control other people, to control, to try to control the situation, to try to control the environment, to try to control churches, to try to control businesses, to try to control whatever the situation might be. This is when we have to be very careful, people of God. It's the temptation to use power to abuse other people, to oppress other people, to get others to serve me instead of serving other people to help us serve God. And here's the warning. Listen, we all have a lust for power. You might not, you might not be willing to admit that. I will tell you right now that deep inside of the bones of Jay Duncan, there is a lust for power. Now, we don't like that language. That language is affrontive. That language is severe. That language is brash. But listen, if we are not willing to confront our inherent lust for power. It will go insidiously unchecked. Just because you are not willing to acknowledge that you have a lust for power does not mean that there is not an inherent lust for power inside of you. We all want to be self-determining. None of us want someone to tell us what to do. We all want to be independent. We all want to be free. We all want financial power. There's not one person in this room that doesn't want more money that doesn't want to be smarter, that doesn't want more knowledge, that doesn't want to be stronger to run faster. My kids have this little game that they play all the time, and I understand it. I enjoy it. And it's this game that says, if you could have a superpower, dad, what would it be? Right? I mean, we are living in the MCU age, so... We're just, we're fascinated with Wanda and Vision and Cap and Wolverine and all these, these superhuman people. And we say, oh man, if I could have a superpower, it would be this. I would walk through walls, I would fly, I would, right? But here's the dangerous thing about this how are we leveraging this power? Power is neutral, it's neither good or bad, but power bends to the will. Of the person who controls it. Now let me give you something right now, you guys, that I pray helps you. And if it once you get past the offensiveness of this statement, maybe you'll appreciate me in the future. <laughs> Be suspicious of the ideas that play to your inherent lust for more. Like let that settle in. Be suspicious. Learn to build natural suspicions to any idea that is playing to your inherent lust for more because they abound and they are cloaked in Christian terminology. They abound and they are cloaked in Christian terminology. Be careful or be mindful of ideas that come to you in the name of Jesus, but don't carry the spirit of Jesus, right? So I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, I wanted to play for the NBA. What kid who plays basketball doesn't want to play for the NBA, right? That's the goal. That's the end game. We don't want to play ball just to play on the street. We want to play. We want to, we want to be ballers. Okay? And I remember bargaining with the Lord. And I would make these little negotiations with God. I said, God, I'll tell you what. I said, when I'm a baller, I said, I'm filling up. I would have these conversations, and I'm filling up arenas. I said, I promise you, I will put a Bible under every chair. And at halftime, at halftime, I will come out, Lord, and I will preach the gospel. I promise you this. I promise you this. Right? But listen, these are the kinds of negotiations. And we go, oh, that's sweet. But you do it too. You make your own negotiations with the Lord. We do this. We do do this when we give money and we say, okay, I'm going to put this into the offering plate because I know that if I do this, I'm going to get not one, not 10, not 20, but I'm going to get a hundred-fold return on that investment, right? And so the only reason I'm doing that is because I believe that I'm going to become more powerful financially, right? you got to be careful of that. You have to be careful of that. So I, I, I hesitated on sharing this, and I'm not going to go too deep, but several years ago, um, there, was a, there was a resurrection there was a a restoration of an ideology called the Seven Mountain Mandate. And it was was an ideology that essentially said that our role and our goal as believers is that we are called to take dominion at the highest levels of the culture-shaping arenas in our nation. Like, that is... The reason why we were created, and that is the mandate upon every believer. And, dude, I'm telling you, I preached the paint off the walls in that message. I believed at Logstock and Barrel because it played to an inherent lust for power. Now, there are, we have to analyze this. There are certain elements of that that we have to say yes, believers should be excellent, believers should be faithful, believers should be responsible. But my Bible tells me that it's God who promotes and God who puts down right? Anything that puts control back into our hands, utilizing Christian language, you have to be suspicious of. Bigger and better and faster is not always God. Just because it has the name of God doesn't mean it carries the spirit of God. And here's what I'm going to tell you today. If it does not look like the character of Jesus, it's probably not Jesus, so we can, we can say things like, Christians, you're supposed to lead in the highest levels of society, and we're supposed to take over cities. Nowhere in my Bible does it tell us that we're called to take over cities. <laughs> Nowhere in my Bible does it say that we're supposed to occupy and take dominion over the highest levels of the culture-shaping arenas of our society. It does not say that. It does say that we're called to take up our cross and to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus faithfully wherever he leads us. Because if we're not careful, we will create a new kind of Christian classification. Well, I'm dominating in the arena of business, and apparently you're not as spiritual as I am because you're not as powerful. You've got to be careful of that ideology. Your spiritual value your spiritual faithfulness are not determined by your level of status in society. That's right. I want you to think about this. Jesus' response to the disciples' request for the restoration of the kingdom was this. I don't miss this. You guys will receive power. Yes! I knew it! Resurrection power, here we come. But, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. First of all, you have to wait for it wait a minute. Resurrection is now, man. Resurrection is here. No, 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 no. You have to wait for it. What is inherent within that command? It doesn't belong to you and you can't control it. You have to wait for it. Wait for it. And we don't like waiting. I want promotions now. I want charisma. Now I want fame. Now I want control. Now I want money. Now I want, I want it all now. And it said, no, 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 listen, listen, you got to wait for it. And something is happening in that 40 day period to Pentecost. What is happening? I think, I think Jesus is tempering that inherent lust for power, because what happens when the oppressed get power, And if it is not sanctified and redeemed by the spirit of God and by the perspective and purpose of God, what's natural, folks? You talk to me. You oppress me and I get more power. It's game time, right? This is natural. This is human. You have to understand this. We operate like this. My kids have been fascinated with the soundtrack of Hamilton now for the past year. And for those of you guys who are not aware of what Hamilton is, it's essentially set around the historical period of the Revolutionary War, and it's a story about some of the founding fathers and our fight for independence. And there's this line that Hamilton has as he's reflecting on not missing his shot. I'm not going to miss my moment in history. I'm not going to miss my moment to obtain power and to make a mark and to make a difference. And as he's kind of bringing the song to an end, he says this. He goes, "Scratch that. This this is not a moment. It's the movement." where all the hungriest brothers was something to prove when foes oppose us. But listen, we take an honest stand. We roll like Moses claiming our promised land. And if we win our independence, is that a guarantee of freedom for our descendants? Or will the blood we shed begin an endless cycle of vengeance and death with no defendants? The way you break the cycle of tyranny and oppression is not by getting more power to defeat your enemies. That is the way of the world. That's the way of the cartel. That's the way of the mafia. That's the way of the godfather. That's the way of the corporate enterprise. That's the way of the world, friends. Listen, this is the way of the cartel. Fine. I'm going to go underground. And I'm gonna create a network, and I'm gonna get more product, and I'm gonna get more money so I can get more guns so that I can control you, and I'm gonna be the biggest baller on the block. That's the way of the world, and we do it in our own way all the time. How do you break this cycle? Jesus says, I'm gonna give you power, but it's not power to overthrow your oppressors, it's power to win the hearts of your oppressors, it's power to love your enemy. It's power to forgive those who abuse you and take advantage. I don't like listen, I don't like this gospel. I don't. Everything inside of my human carnal nature despises this gospel. This is how I know it's the gospel of God. Because it is absolutely impossible. Every fiber of my being hungers For beauty and youth and wealth and position and status and to overthrow my enemies and to be the king of the mountain. And God says the way that you serve, the way that you defeat your enemies is you wash their feet. There's a story. I'll I'll end with this. There's a story here in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to just read all these verses just so we can count. I was going to summarize it, and as I read it again, I thought, man, this is so good for us to put our eyes on. Verse 1 in Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. So sweet, right? So (laughs) subtle. So disarming. What is it you want? He asked. She says, grant that one of these two sons of mine. Doesn't even have to be both of them. I just need one kid to play in the NBA. (laughs) I just need one. One out of four, Lord. My odds are decent. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? In other words, do you understand what the kingdom life is really about? Do you understand that power and authority in the kingdom are purchased not for the purpose of lording it over and they're not purchased by evil means. True authority in the kingdom means that you will be taken advantage of. It means that you will die to yourself because listen, listen, here it is. Here's the punchline for everything I'm saying today. Only a person who has died to themselves can be trusted with power to serve the kingdom so that Jesus is the hero of the story and not us. Only a person who embraces the cruciform life can be trusted with power to build God's kingdom so that he's the hero and not us. Only a person who has embraced the life of the cross can be trusted with power to love our enemies to break the cycle of the oppression by washing the very feet of the boot that was on our neck. That's the only way the kingdom of God comes. So that he's the hero and not us. This is the gospel. It's not the American gospel. We have perverted the gospel of Jesus. Friends, would you stand with me this morning? Here's what Jesus says to the mom. He says, listen, here's why I came. Verse 28, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Here's, here's, it's gonna just pull it all together. The son of man came not to defeat his oppressors. The son of man came not to flex his muscle. The son of man came not to be elevated in status and position. The son of man came not to build his own kingdom. The son of man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If we're really honest with ourselves, any other king building any other kingdom means that a lot of us are not going to be in that kingdom. The reason why you're here today, the reason why you're invited to this table, it's not because of how great you are. It's not because of you pulling up your bootstraps and making something of your life, you are here not because of anything you've done. You cannot be good enough. You are here because a merciful God sent a faithful son to show us what the kingdom of God looks like. When a family of believers motivated by love serve one another, beautiful things happen in the earth. So, friends, today I want to welcome you to the table of the Lord. You're invited to this table not based on your own merit. You're invited to this table because the Son of God laid down his life and he died for you. It is by grace that you have been saved, not by works. This is not of yourself, so that no human being can boast but that God and God alone could receive glory for being the hero of the ultimate story. And that ultimate story is him making right what we have made wrong. Friends, come to the table of the Lord and let us receive deeply of the goodness of God. Dusty, as these guys are making their way up front, I don't know if you could find maybe the Lord's Prayer. We could put that on the screen and we'll all pray this together. As you're making your way back to your seat, I want you to think about something. Good gospel preaching should do two things. I'm gonna test myself right now. Good gospel preaching should bring you to a place where you recognize this, is, this kind of life is utterly impossible. You should walk out of here going, oh my God, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I can't do it. Yes, you're right. Cause think about the mantra of the world is there's been this new mantra that's been going around it's you're enough anybody seen that on social media you're enough you're enough you're enough you can do it single mom you're enough you're no listen you are not enough you're not I am not enough the message of the gospel says this is utterly impossible without God And then the message of the gospel says, yet there is hope because in Christ we can do all things. So today, oh God, we take the bread, the body of Christ on the night when Jesus was betrayed, sat together with his closest friends and he looked him in the eye and he says, friends, this is my body and it's broken for you. Will you break the bread in your hand this morning? It's broken. I'm gonna be emptied. I'm gonna be crushed. I'm gonna allow the boot of the oppressor to, to rest on my neck in order for life and liberty to come to you. Let us take and receive of the body of Christ this morning. Then Jesus took the cup and he says, this is the cup of the forgiveness of sins. Every week when you come into this place, you should be reminded that because of what Jesus has done, your sins have been forgiven every day of every week that I live, I fall short. I do things I shouldn't do. I don't do things I should do. I think thoughts, I have inclinations, I act on them. Right, that pervading sense of guilt and shame try to creep up on me and I come here and I'm reminded, I'm reminded your sins have been forgiven. Friends, I want you every time you walk out of this room, I want you to walk out of this room with your head held high, not because of what you've done, but because there's been a great price that's been paid to set you free, to wash you and to cleanse you and to remind you not of what you've done, but who you have been called to be in Christ. So Father, today we receive the cup of fresh and anew. Let us receive. Hallelujah, thanks be to God, the resurrected one who gives us his spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, folks, let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from... Thank you, Jesus. up your hands, I want to bless you as I commission you out as the people of God to inhabit the spaces that God has called you to in the faithfulness of God. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord just shower you with his faithfulness and his favor. May the Lord pour out shalom, wholeness and goodness on you. May the Lord lift up your countenance. May the Lord cause his face to shine with favor on your lives, friends. May the Lord remind you of who he is and consequently who you are. And may you be empowered to live this line out. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.